Hello, and welcome to the IQT podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special B-Next series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a vice president at BNEXT, which is the biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. I am joined on the podcast by a special guest and good friend, Dr. Jeff Shaman. Uh, he's a professor at Columbia University, uh, director of the Climate and Health Program at the Mailman School of Public Health. Jeff's lab has been on the forefront of developing dynamical and statistical modeling techniques to simulate and forecast infectious diseases. And much of his work has been developing epidemiological models for outbreaks, and that does include forecasting techniques. Jeff has published many significant papers in all the major journals, and so you can get a good sense of that by looking at his uh, website or uh, his Google Scholar site. He's been very active in publishing on COVID-19 as well. Now, there's two papers in particular that have been, I think, very influential, and these papers are entitled Substantial Undocumented Infection Facilitates the rapid dissemination of novel coronaviruses. Um, this was in early May in Science. This paper helped us all understand and emphasize the impact of silent spread and how presymptomatic spread was so challenging and continues to be so challenging for controlling COVID 19. Also, Jeff was a senior author on a paper called Differential Effects of Intervention Timing on COVID 19 Spread in the United States. And this is in a preprint. Uh, but this paper highlighted that early action saves lives. In fact, if interventions were put in place as little as one to two weeks earlier, many more people could have been saved. And so I like to refer to this as, you know, public health interventions are like Chicago voting. Early and often has more impact. Not only has uh, Jeff been at the forefront of developing modeling and forecasting for outbreaks, he's been a regular in the media trying to help us all understand the COVID pandemic, its risks, and what can be done. And so, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. My pleasure being here. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Yeah. So, Jeff, um, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, what's your background and, and why did you choose infectious diseases and modeling as kind of a career path? Well, my background is actually a little bit varied. Just starting from the point of where I was academically, I, I actually got a degree, my PhD from Columbia University in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department. And that was actually a PhD in studying climate science, atmospheric science, and hydrology. So it's, it's just sort of physical sciences based in the geoscience, it's geophysics. And while I was doing my dissertation, though, I, I did a lot of work studying mosquitoes, which seems a little incongruous, but what I was interested in is how 
meteorological and hydrologic variability affect mosquitoes, mosquito abundance, the breeding habitats they exploit, and what that means for disease outcomes. I started working on a, a very lesser known uh, arbovirus or arthropod-borne virus that mosquitoes transmit in the United States called St. Louis encephalitis virus. But while I was a graduate student, uh, West Nile virus emerged in New York City. I was in New York City and it emerged uh, in my second year. And at that point, it then very quickly spread across the country. And it was a, a system of, or a disease that's actually very related to St. Louis encephalitis virus, West Nile virus is. And it used the same mosquito vectors and avian bird hosts uh, in across the North American landscape. So it actually turned out to have somewhat similar dynamics that we could also study and leverage some of the techniques that I've been developing to, to understand and uh, try, to, try to make sense of what was going on. In particular, we were looking at connections between uh, drought and what that does for the amplification of virus and mosquito populations and how that predisposes human populations for rate greater risk of spill. Just to say it briefly, what we found is that when you have drought conditions, when there are limited water resources, birds and mosquitoes congregate to those same limited resources. That physical congregation or convergence in space and time means that the mosquitoes are going to spend more time feeding on the birds. And if the virus is present there, it can amplify. You can get go where you pass the virus back and forth between the mosquito and bird populations. And the mosquito infection rates, the fraction of mosquitoes that are actually infected with West Nile virus, increases. Same thing for St. Louis encephalitis virus. That process we call an amplification, and it's a numbers game. If you have one in a million mosquitoes infected with West Nile virus, the, the likelihood that you're going to have a mosquito bite a human that results in spillover transmission of that virus to a human is pretty low. But if that jumps up to one in 10,000 or one in 1,000, suddenly the numbers are more in the favor of the, of the virus actually spilling over. So this is something that we were able to document and show in a number of pair papers. And it was sort of my, my real ingress into working on issues related to how the physical uh, system, how meteorological and hydrologic conditions affect the dynamics of a disease system. So that's how it got my start. No, that's a, that's very exciting, and it's uh, you know it's like we both come from the same sort of general origins of thinking about ecology and how it impacts the disease dynamics in some capacity. And so it's a uh, it's just you know amazingly really interesting work. And again, you know, it's like actually ecology does matter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, you like you've been developing really amazing sorts of models to help us understand disease dynamics, like you just described for um, St. Louis encephalitis and and others. And but broadly, let's take one step back though too. It's like what what's your perception of what is the value proposition for disease modeling and helping us understand risk of diseases? You know, I think there are three things that we really use models to do. One is we use them to try to understand the ecological and epidemiological characteristics that allow these viruses to persist, that allow them to propagate, that allow them to move from host to host and persist and, and wreak the havoc that they do. I think the second thing that we're interested in doing is using these systems because they're easier to use than the real world to test intervention strategies. Based on our understanding of these systems, what can we do to actually intervene? How should a vaccine trial be designed? What kind of non-pharmaceutical interventions are, are, can be imposed? And what does that mean actually for outcomes? That kind of work is something that the in silica environment, the computer environment, is really lends itself to. The last thing is out-of-sample prediction. 
And there the question is, what's going to happen in the future? And we, we have information on the past. It's usually incomplete and not as good as we'd like it to be. We have some information on what's going on in the present, and that tends to be a little bit more limited. But we'd also like to know what's going to go on in the future. And a model system that's been trained and optimized and is capable of representing what has happened in the past may be able to tell you something about what's going to happen in the future, at least in the near term, and give you some insight into what we might expect in terms of disease activity uh, and how it varies in space. Yeah, and so this forecasting sort of capability or trying to anticipate what the projection or the, the, the trajectory of an outbreak is, is going to be, you've really been at the forefront of trying to take techniques from the uh, atmospheric sciences and from weather forecasting and apply them to infectious disease forecasting. And over the past, you know, 10 years or 10 plus years, mm -hmm. you've been really pushing this sort of capability and trying to develop the science more rigorously. What, how have you pulled some of those kinds of capabilities or those, the science from weather forecasting into um, infectious disease forecasting? Well, you know, for me, it really started with influenza. And, um, I had been doing some work on influenza where I had been doing something similar to what I talked about for West Nile virus, where I was looking at what are the atmospheric meteorological drivers of it. And we, we had found that uh, when you look at laboratory experiments, both within animal models and the transmission of flu between them, as well as survival experiments just of the, uh, of the virus itself on surfaces or aerosolized, that it seemed to be modulated by atmosphere, uh, excuse me, absolute humidity conditions in the uh, atmosphere, and that's the amount of water vapor that's in the air as opposed to the relative humidity, which tells you how close you are to forming a cloud or fog. And um, what we saw is that it, it fell on along those lines, and we were able to build a model that could actually simulate the seasonal cycle of influenza. So one of the marked features of influenza is that it occurs in the wintertime. It's got this very pronounced seasonality once you get outside the tropics, and people have pondered that for quite some time, thousands of years actually. and there had been a group, number of hypotheses. One was related to people's mixing. Another one was related to changes in immune function. And the third had to do with these environmental conditions. And we were able to show that you could take a model that described the propagation of influenza through a local population, and you could force it with observed humidity conditions in the United States, and you could reproduce the annual cycles, the average climatology, if you will, of influenza. And we could also see that onset events, when the flu season started, when you first got these outbreaks, were more likely to occur if you had these anomalies of drier conditions. And so humidity is very dry in the wintertime, and that seems to be what favors the survival and transmissibility of influenza. So we were able to describe with this model the average cycle, but then the question was, could we use humidity conditions enforcing and actually make a forecast of what was going to happen in the future with flu? And the answer was no, you can't do it. And the reason you can't do it is the system is nonlinear. And nonlinear systems are traditionally very hard to make predictions with. They don't behave as well. Uh, when they get strongly nonlinear, they devolve into deterministic chaos. And that makes predictability very, very challenging. And so I was, I was talking about this with a colleague of mine, and her name's Dr. Alicia Karspeck, and she was at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and she and I were in graduate school together. And I was saying, you know, what I'd really like to do is, is do some forecasts with this, but it's a bit challenging just to do it with uh, humidity forcing. And she said to me, you know, this really sounds like a wonderful problem for data assimilation. And I knew that she worked on what are called data assimilation techniques, which are these statistical methods that usually draw off of Bayesian inference 
uh, approaches that are used to optimize numerical weather models. And the atmosphere is like the quintessence of the problem of prediction for a nonlinear system. As a matter of fact, chaos was first defined by Ed Lorenz in the context of turbulence in the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is this high dimensional system that has uh, strong nonlinearities in it and is very, very chaotic. Uh, yet, they are able to make predictions. They are able to make accurate forecasts on certain timescales within the window or the limits of predictability for this system. And the way they're really able to do that is they combine the model with these data simulation algorithms and they use the data simulation to ingest observations of the system and to optimize the model on the fly. And what this is, is it's called state space estimation. It's the idea of trying to estimate what the conditions are in the model that best represent what's actually going on in the atmosphere. And you know that based on the observations. The observations themselves have errors in them. The model has errors in it but you're trying to come to some sort of consensus about what's the best um, representation of the model. And you try to represent it from the past up to the present. And it's kind of like aiming a cannon or a gun, not to be crude about it, but you're trying to find the initial states for the model that are most in line with what the initial state actually is out there, right? Broadly, you're trying to fill in all the gaps, places where you don't have measurements of temperature or rainfall or pressure or wind speed or humidity, and you're trying to make a complete picture for the model there. And you're trying to align it with that over the last few days in the case of weather. And then you send it off into the future to make a forecast out seven or 14 days. And that's how they generate a, a weather forecast. And then they have all sorts of post-processing to determine how well it's doing, to calibrate it, et cetera. And so the idea there was, could we take those same methods? And when I say that, I'm not talking about the humidity forcing that I talked about previously for influenza. I'm talking about the mechanics, the mathematical and statistical approaches that are underlie numerical weather prediction. Could we transfer those to an infectious disease system? And so what that meant was we needed to take a model that described the propagation of flu, and that could be just a simple influenza model. It could be the humidity force model. As a matter of fact, we started with the humidity force model. But then we want to combine it with observations of what's happened in the recent past up to the present, along with these data simulation methods. We pick one, we use it in order to optimize this model and generate an ensemble forecast and then assess whether or not it does a good job. Um, and there's some things that are interesting as well because it's a little different working on a biological system versus a physical system. So within, within mathematical models, when you're using them to describe a system, you tend to have what are called state variables, which describe the conditions that change over time. So, you know, for the atmosphere, that would be what's the temperature here, what is it the next day or the next hour, et cetera, what's the pressure, what's the rainfall, all those things are state variables that describe the conditions of the atmosphere. Right? But in addition, you have what are called parameters. And parameters are things that might describe relationships or processes or transition rates that guide some of the movements in it. So this could be a coefficient of drag in an atmospheric model. And in an atmospheric model, these tend to be immutable because they represent physical processes that we understand, and we're not expecting them to change or evolve over time. But when you're dealing with a biological system, it's transient. It is always changing. It is literally evolving. So when we have flu and we're concerned about what's the transmissibility of the flu this season, 
it's not going to be the same as last season's. A, it's not the same flu. And B, even if it were, it's evolved, it's mutated over that time, and it may change. And so we have to actually not just estimate the state variables, but we have to estimate the parameters as well. It's a not so subtle difference. I mean, it may sound a little subtle, but it, it, it changes the tenor of what we're trying to do. Because when you're dealing with a biological system, one of the things you're really interested in is inferring those parameters, because those represent the critical characteristics of the disease system. Things like how long does a person stay infectious on average? How transmissible is this virus? We've all been hearing about r naught in the media of late because of COVID-19 that we're dealing with right now. Um, and that's one of the things we want to estimate whenever we're, we're trying to forecast a disease. We're, we're explicitly, in, in, the case, in this case, estimating what that number is and using that to develop a better forecast. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think this, that was a beautiful description. I mean, so uh, coming, coming down to the basic kind of components, though, it's like we need, we need better models. Mm-hmm. We need data and the observations. Mm-hmm. We need these data simulation uh, capabilities to actually bring the data and the model together to actually uh, project forward. And then this calibration kind of component afterward to, to test whether or not it's actually doing what we think it's doing. Mm-hmm. But those are the kind of basic components of, of, of what we would need uh, to, to move that forward. And, 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 and so you've started applying that, that same sort of approach to infectious disease models going forward. And what's the range of uh, pathogens that you've actually tried to apply this to to date? Right. And, you know, that, that's absolutely right, Dylan, by the way. Those are the core components that make it up. And, there, you know, there are other issues that arise. To date, we've applied it to influenza, to Ebola in West Africa, as a matter of fact, to West Nile virus, and to COVID-19. And I'm saying those four first because those are the four for which we've made real-time mm-hmm. projections, where we actually put it into some kind of operational setting to generate a forecast, or in the case of COVID-19, a projection. But we've also done it retrospectively and shown that it works for respiratory syncytial virus, which is another respiratory virus, uh, for adenovirus to some extent, for rhinovirus, and for diarrheal disease as well, uh, as well as dengue. Yeah, and I think that it was really critical that you talk about how estimating the parameters is a significant kind of divergence from what happens in weather forecasting, because it poses significant challenges. I mean, the the flu example that you you brought up was every season you need to reevaluate those, but you can kind of learn from past seasons what those what that parameter space looks like. But it's exquisitely challenging for things like Ebola in emerging infectious mm-hmm. disease like Ebola or COVID nineteen, where we don't have a really good kind of uh, prior information to understand what those parameters look like. Right. And in some say, and some might argue that, you know, that's where using the type of approach I'm describing as opposed to a a purely statistical prediction system is advantageous when you're dealing with a novel virus or a novel pathogen, because you can try to develop a system that describes the dynamics as you understand it. And you're not needing a lot of historical records to try to do it as sort of this black box pattern matching form that is what, you know, essentially what a statistical forecasting system does. But, mm-hmm. but you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that we did with, for instance, with COVID-19 is we, we wanted to understand its epidemiological characteristics. Before even making any kinds of projections, we want to understand what makes it tick. We want to understand how it's getting around so efficiently. And, you know, that first paper that you cited it when you introduced, where we talk about substantial undocumented infection, we're showing that the majority of people who are infected with this virus are not documented for one reason or another. 
you know, at the time when we did this, and we did this study, by the way, in the beginning of February, actually the end of January, you know, we didn't know whether they were mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. But what we could infer is that this group of people who had COVID-19, but weren't being swabbed and confirmed as actually having an infection, they were the majority of infections out there. Most people don't bother to do it, which would suggest that there's a lot of mild or asymptomatic infection out there. And we could also mm-hmm. see from the same system that there was a lot of pre-symptomatic shedding amongst those yep. who were confirmed. And all those things together indicated to us, you know, that this virus had a critical characteristic that was going to make it a pandemic. And that was that people were unknowingly sharing it. They were going around and doing what you or I do whenever we get a common cold, which is nothing. We were going about our business. We go to work, we go to school, we get on public transportation, we go to restaurants, we have a business trip, you get on an airplane. And what do those people do? They're bringing the virus with them. They're still shedding it. They are contagious. Many of them Mm -hmm. are spreading the virus and some of them may even be super spreaders, but they don't know they have it because in most instances, they have very little or no symptoms. And as a consequence, they're not doing anything precautionary to actually protect the people around them. And so what does that do is it enables the virus to geographically translocate. So when, you know, we were suspicious of this immediately when we saw COVID-19, because mm-hmm. we could see from the epicenter in Wuhan in January, how rapidly it was spreading to other cities in China, and then hopping on airplanes and winding up in Thailand and South Korea and Japan and the U.S., And immediately, given some other studies that we had done, some field studies that we had done in New York City, we realized that this had the characteristics of the common viruses that we're always getting recurrently, things like flu and the endemic coronaviruses and rhinovirus. They all share this property. That is that the most of the infections they induce are not severe and don't elicit a response of somebody actually going to see a doctor. It's very clear that, you know, like modeling to understand the risk and then also the forecasting capabilities that you've so uh, beautifully described have been helpful. They were definitely helpful during the Ebola response and they are, uh, have been and are currently being helpful in us understanding the risk associated with COVID and as we're moving forward. And so, you know, one of the things that we've witnessed as well is that um, there's been a uh, an amazing surge of people volunteering their time like you. I mean, you're an academic uh, full time mm-hmm. and this is not your day job is to advise public health agencies on what they should do and how to think about an emerging infectious disease. But because of who you are and what you're doing and your skill set, you've been jumping in, as we, we had talked about uh, previously, to try to figure out how to help um, with the pandemic. So if we were to think about how to how to really scale these kinds of efforts um, in forecasting and transform our capabilities to do infectious disease modeling and forecasting, what kinds of things would you think about would be really critical in uh, transforming the capability and, and scaling it uh, across the United States and to other places globally? Well, you know, the answer is kind of almost a little boring to listen to. It's a little tedious, but what what it requires is some degree of centralization of what you're doing. It requires a architecture, a physical and a um, data storage architecture for maintaining and organizing the data that we need. It requires that on the front end, It requires an archiving of the models that are being used. 
It requires an archiving of the outputs of the models, all their forecasts. It really requires a system that is analogous to what the National Weather Service is doing all the time. They're doing these things continually because we have to actually preserve and look at what's happened. And it's not that, you know, the average person needs to go in and find out, well, what was the forecast on, you know, January 23rd, 1983? And what did it say what the rainfall was going to be in, you know, Poughkeepsie, New York? It's not so much that as you need the people who are actually in there, who are the dedicated operational people in charge of it, having that resource available so they could look at that. So they can look over time to see how the forecasts have developed and to see what methods have worked and what have not and to quality check and control what's going on continually. So we, we would need sort of an infrastructure and that is personnel, that's space, that's hardware, that's software storage really. It's not so much software, but storage to actually make this happen. Uh, you know, the other things we need was we need an investment in observations. This is going to be, you know, the drum that you're gonna hear anybody who's working in this banging. And that's simply because uh, it's never enough. The more information you had, the better it would be. And right now, the way that we observe diseases is actually kind of limited when you get down to it. We don't know how many people are susceptible. We don't know anything about these undocumented infections because we, we wait for people to come to us seeking medical treatment. Uh, and there's a lot of sparsity of, of observation in many places in the world for many diseases. The consequence of that is that you, you have very limited information in some places, so much so that you really can't support any kind of analysis or modeling for many of the diseases that are out there. If you had some sort of centralized system that begins to develop that, that really puts together data and makes it available to the community in a way that would be phenomenal, even more so, but also in-house is sort of dedicated to the operational development and implementation of forecasts that are for utility, for utilization, that, that's what you want. And again, the, the analog to the National Weather Service is very apt because, you know, they are making predictions on a continual basis. They are working on it. They're delivering operations. They also have branches of them that are actually working on developing better forecasts. But they're not the only ones who do it. They partner with academics. They partner with private industry at times to develop all sorts of things that are ultimately going to be brought to bear. And that could be new observational systems, new hardware for making observations, new data simulation algorithms, new schemes for representing processes that previously had been what's called parameterized in a physical model, ways of refining and improving it based on the understanding of the physics, which continually improves as it is in the case for atmospheric science you'd kind of want the same thing. The idea is not to hand over to one entity all responsibility for it, but what you want is some central place that's going to be able to provide enough of a backbone that everybody can work from and interact for, with that as they choose to, as well as providing the best operational products possible for use in, in the context, in this case, of infectious disease, and in particular when you have a pandemic as well. It would be a very strong organizing system to have in place. As I've learned more about how weather forecasting is has been done and and you've been, you know, kind of my my main tutor in 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 understanding what that is like. It's like thinking about the National Center for Atmospheric Research and their one of their main remits is is advancing the science mm -hmm. of weather forecasting and atmospheric forecasting. National Weather Service is their main remit is operationalizing like you've described so that they can be done on a daily basis and, and generated con consistently so taking the best of breed from the science and using it in an operational context mm -hmm. 
and then you know trying to push that out to locals in some capacity so that they can have a better understanding of that but it's the the thing that i loved about your comments though too is that we do need to improve the science associated with not only uh, collecting the key information so that we have better observations and better data but we need to improve the the models the parameterization processes and the data simulation processes to actually do this in a, in an improved way mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are many outstanding research questions. And the thing that's never happened with uh, weather prediction is they haven't less rested on their laurels. I mean, I, I, it's a favorite graphic I have that I've shared with you, and I know it's one of your favorite graphics that shows how the skill, which is a measure of the accuracy of weather prediction, has improved over the last 60 years. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because there's been a lot of investment and in research to make those forecasts better and better. Absolutely. And when they first started generating numerical weather predictions, they were not that great, you know, and they've improved enormously, enormously. And they continue to do so. It's this monotonic rise in skill or accuracy of the forecasts that they, you can show over time, over a 65-year period at this point. And it's because of some of the practices that they've engaged in. It's because they regularly uh, archive and they operationalize it, that they have a record to show that change and show that progression and see where they have succeeded and see where they haven't. And that's how you inform what needs to be worked on and what doesn't. And so having that kind of infrastructure that allows you to consistently deliver forecasts in a central way and archive it allows for understanding. I mean, it's a cornerstone for science. You have to observe it. And in this case, the system that you're observing is the predictions you're making themselves. You're doing something that is prediction science. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is this is wonderful. You know, so if you had a magic wand, what would you what would you use it for? I mean, you've, we've talked about this like centralized infrastructure and trying to Im improve the data sets, improve the, the modeling, have a, a centralized entity that could organize uh, these things and make them available to the broader community. In addition to that, I mean, is there anything beyond that that you, or if you had one a magic wand to do one thing right now, what would that be? It would either be to create that centralized system or to just yeah. vastly radically improve observations of disease around the world and access the information. It's one of those two things. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard Those one. are the two things that are critical. Even if you built the centralized structure in the United States, it doesn't mean you have the data at the level that you would love to no. have. Agreed. So both of those are sort of competing interests that are impeding our ability to actually uh, better understand disease and better forecast them. And it's hard for me to say which is more important. I'd actually lean probably towards observations because there's such yeah. a paucity of observations, particularly in you know areas of the developing world where you just you don't know what's yeah. going on. I mean, if you ask yourself right now, what is happening with COVID-19 in the Central African Republic? My answer is, Good question. question. I don't Who know. Knows? Who knows? <laughs> you know, let alone what's happening with any number of other diseases like malaria and TB and, you know, even Ebola. So, so uh, this is, this has been really amazing. You know, if people are interested in learning more about you or about the great science that you're doing or just keeping up with you in the media, how would they be able to get a hold of you? Well, they'd have to talk to my press agent. I'm kidding. I don't have a presentation. I don't know how to answer that, Dylan. I mean, how do they get a hold of me? Well, look, uh, my, my webpage is out there. 
the research I have is out there. If you Google me in <laughs> Colombia, you will find me. My name is a little unusual, though there are a couple other Jeffrey Shamans. And, you know, if you look into that, you know, people who are interested in academic stuff can, can email me, um, you know. Yeah. You know, but uh, given the frequency with which you're in the media, you should probably think about getting an agent. Well, I have to find out how to pay that person, but yes, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Jeff, as always, it is just, you know, just wonderful to talk with you. And every time I talk with you, I learn more. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your experiences where you've come from and infectious disease forecasting. And also just as a personal, very appreciative of the, um, how dedicated and how much time you're spending on trying to help us understand the pandemic. It's been, um, what you're doing is helping and really appreciate uh, everything that, that you've been putting out there. Thank you, Dylan. But uh, obviously I'm not the only person. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. But uh, it's been, it's been great. And we'd like to uh, thank our listeners for tuning in. Everyone, be safe and be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on Be Next, visit www.bnext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessine and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.